Welcome to the MedEvidence Podcast, hosted by Dr. Michael Corrin and Michelle McCormick. MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the real truth behind medical research with both a clinical and research perspective. In this podcast, we'll have discussions with physicians that have extensive experience in patient care and research. How do you know that something works? In medicine, we conduct clinical trials to see if things work. Now, let's get the truth behind the data. Welcome to MedEvidence, powered by Encore Research Group. Go to EncoreDocs.com. This is MedEvidence, Truth Behind the Data, with Dr. Michael Corrin. He is a practicing cardiologist and chief executive officer at Encore Research Group, which conducts trials across Florida, clinical trials across Florida. He has been the principal investigator of over 2,000 trials and has been published in the most prestigious medical journals. Dr. Corrin received his medical degree, cum laude, at Harvard Medical School. For more information on local trials, visit EncoreDocs.com. That's E-N-C-O-R. R-E-D-O-C-S.com or call 904-730-0166. Well, in this episode, Med Evidence, Truth Behind the Data with Dr. Michael Corrin, we're actually going to talk about truth behind the data. Dr. Corrin, we learned a lot about the beginnings of clinical trials. We are still waiting to see how the lady with the tea experiment worked out. So I'm patiently waiting for that. But in the meantime, we've talked about truth. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the first um, trials with a vaccine for smallpox, six people, Mm -hmm. kind of a small trial. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what what's next? How did how did the the trials you know, uh, grow since 1721. Sure. So again, looking for truth, which is what this is all about, the the folks that did the experiment in 1721 at the Newgate prison became convinced, based on this relatively small sample size, that they had a solution. And again, it was prospective. It wasn't just somebody's story. It was an old wives' tale. It was actually... It seemed to work. Uh, ...an experiment. There's a couple of interesting things about that. There were actually... I I talked about deductive reasoning, and the key elements of deductive reasoning is that all the inputs to the deduction are true, and the question is framed properly. But how do you know that all the inputs to the deduction are true? So there's actually uh, some very interesting little sidebar of of the Newgate prison story, which is that one of the prisoners lied about their history. Oh. One of the prisoners actually had smallpox before and didn't disclose that. Huh. And they only found out about that because when they tried to inoculate that person, the, the, the pus would not make a lesion on the leg because that patient's immune system was already working and fighting smallpox. So that patient had to go back for a second surgery with a bigger cut and more pus before there was any evidence that there was some problem. Hmm. Okay. So um, with any, any experiment, there's always people that may cheat, and you have to be careful about that. But if there's... A uh, very rigorous design and very caretaken, a lot of caretaken in terms of how you set up all the details, then you will come up with a deductive reasoning conclusion. The other thing that's interesting about the Newgate prison story is that um, they actually tested the patients after the fact by having some of the people that were in the experiment sleep in the same room with somebody with smallpox to see if they got sick. Mm-hmm. And they didn't. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions is even if they were injected or the pus was put in, are they still contagious to the other population? Well, once they get past that initial uh, response, they are immune uh-huh. and then they won't get the virus or spread the virus. Okay. 
which is true to today. Huh. And that was our early learning about that. But anyhow, that was a small study, and we, we needed more confirmatory evidence, of course. So the next big piece of the puzzle actually occurred in the same year for the same pandemic. Obviously, you know, when you have a virus, it spreads. We, we know that. And even though travel was not as extensive in 1721 as it is today, people still traveled. Mm-hmm. So there were ships going back and forth between uh, England and the, and the colonies all the time. And um, what, if they brought diseases. So in 1721, during this uh, this pandemic year in Britain, there was a ship that came over, and all the sailors were actually healthy when the ship left. But as the ship was crossing the ocean, one of the sailors got sick with smallpox, and people started freaking out. Of course, so they they get into Boston, and they know that there's a sailor there that that was sick, and the that the word spreads in the community that there's a, a, a sick smallpox person. So there's a fellow named Cotton Mather who was a, a minister at, at that time. And he owned a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus was, you know, a really smart guy. And uh, Cotton Mather and Onesimus kind of you know, had a little bit of a friendship going. And um, Onesimus told Cotton Mather that in Africa, where he was born, what they did to prevent this was to do inoculations. And Cotton Mather was open-minded to a degree and said, huh, well, that's interesting. Um, maybe we should be doing this to protect people in Boston, which is where he lived and where that ship came in. So anyhow, Dr. Uh, uh, Cotton Mather, who wasn't, quote, a really physician, he was one of these Renaissance people that did a little bit of everything, but he liked to think of himself as a man of science. Mm-hmm. He found this guy named Dr. Boylston. Uh, for those of you that have been to uh, Boston, there's a Boylston Street. <laughs> I was just there on a very nice street, by the okay, way. Okay, all right. Lovely street, and it was named after this doctor. Okay. And they together, based on Onesimus's advice and his uh, guidance, inoculated 287 people in Boston in 1721 by making cuts in their leg and putting smallpox pus in it. And uh, lo and behold, the people that were in that group of 287 had a risk of dying that was less than 2% versus about 16% for the general population. So incredible uh, incredible difference was made even in this very primitive type of inoculation. Huh. Okay. And so that led to this concept of inoculations and vaccinations. And ultimately, uh, the observation was made that not only do previous smallpox victims seem to be protected against smallpox during pandemic years, but also people that get cowpox. So they found that milkmaids who were constantly being um, infected with cowpox, Mm -hmm. which is a mild infection, seem to be immune from smallpox. And then uh, Dr. Jenner in the UK eventually created a smallpox vaccine based on giving people cowpox, which is less serious uh, type of infection than actually inoculating people with smallpox itself. Yeah. So that so and then of course uh, things developed more, and we developed a whole industry based on large scale clinical trials once we understood statistics better. And that's getting back to uh, R. A. Fisher, who created the the infrastructure, the intellectual infrastructure for statistical analysis in the early parts of the twentieth century, and then studies uh, like the Framingham study and other studies that became uh, interventional were able to show the the benefits of cardiovascular disease prevention, uh, cardiovascular risk factor disease prevention, and also the the, the benefits of, of inoculation. So mm-hmm. a polio vaccine being right. a, a great example of that, where we literally wiped out a scourge, horrible thing. Obviously, smallpox has been completely eradicated based on a vaccination strategy. And, and uh, most recently, we had this massive effort for COVID-19 showing that literally that we can 
one, develop a vaccine in an incredibly short period of time with modern technology, two, uh, inoculate tens of thousands of people, and three, do, do the hypothesis testing required in an incredibly vigorous way where we know exactly how effective this thing is. We know exactly what side effects to be worried about. And we know that, that there's going to be mortality differences and differences in hospitalization based on these interventions. Yeah. Do you think that that COVID-19 vaccine, is, I mean, these are still, are the trials still ongoing? Sure. Yep. Well, thank you for asking the question. And obviously the, the, the wonderful people who volunteer for the trials in the first place are still yeah. being followed. Good. So um, we, we appreciate them. Obviously, in the beginning, they were involved in a prospective, blinded, randomized trial with a placebo arm. Mm -hmm. So the early people that participated in it didn't know for sure if they were going to get a uh, a real vaccine or a placebo. Eventually, everybody was crossed over. So again, they stayed blinded, but the people who didn't get the vaccine initially got it after a few months. And that's what's called a crossover design. And that's a, a concept of fairness that everybody eventually gets it, but there's a time lag. So you can see if the people who got it earlier do better than the people who got it later. Did the boosters kind of like uh, piggyback on that that and, vaccine that yeah, initial then, trial? Right, and then and then there there was uh, the booster trials, and uh, we participated on the booster trials here in Northeast Florida and, and other places, and uh, that showed that the third dose was also very effective. People who got their initial vaccinations, you know, the two-part series for either Moderna, uh, Pfizer, or Novavax, they were protected. But after a period of time, that protection wanes. So they're they're more likely to get infected with COVID after about six months. Now, it's, it's a much less severe illness. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, they still have some vulnerability. So giving a booster, again, reduces that vulnerability after a six-month time lag. And what was very, very interesting, and this gets into this concept of, of faith and truth, is that we were just proving that the third dose worked, and the FDA approved a fourth dose mm-hmm. based on faith. So they got to a point where they say, okay, well, we know the vaccines are safe and effective in the beginning. We know that a, a booster works and a booster seems to kick in and it becomes necessary for high-risk people after six months. So there's no reason to believe that a fourth dose after another six months should also be beneficial. But the crazy part about this is that um, the FDA approved, quote-unquote, the fourth dose as the data were coming out for the third dose. So even though it was kind of known that the third dose worked, the mm-hmm. formal presentation of the data, which was a New England Journal paper that I was part of, uh, didn't even come out until the FDA was having discussions about the fourth dose. And some people in the scientific community were actually upset with the FDA by jumping the gun. Right. They're saying, is, okay, we're all about deductive reasoning. We're all about clinical trials. And you're making an assumption rather than looking at things from the, the, the standpoint of certainty. How interesting. Do you think this will become a yearly flu shot, you know, type of situation for folks to just continue I, I to... I think so. I, I do think that we, we know that viruses mutate. We know that certainly coronaviruses mutate pretty rapidly and COVID-19 has mutated. It seems that it's fortunately mutating to a, a more benign form. Thank God for that. Mm-hmm. But who knows? It can mutate to something else that may not be quite as benign. So we have to be on the lookout for it. And we know that our immune systems are incredibly capable of fighting the virus in the six months after you're exposed to the vaccine. 
So it only makes sense that we'll use a strategy like we use for the flu and other things where we can um, hopefully give the vaccines on a regular basis to people who are at high risk and prevent them from having severe complications. Now, there'll be some discussions about who's high risk. Uh, there'll be probably high risk definition based on both your exposure risk. So people in the healthcare world, for example, mm-hmm. or people that have you know, are first responders, et cetera, and uh, people who are very, very vulnerable if they were to get infected, you know, cancer patients or people with diabetes or et cetera, et cetera. So we'll, we'll look at that over time. But that's also true for other viruses. So uh, COVID-19 was the talk of the last few years, Mm -hmm. but we have some other nasty viruses out there. Yeah, chikungunya, we're doing studies on that. That's a a problem in tropical areas that's now coming to Florida, Mm. and we're doing work on that. Uh, RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, is is a a virus that can be as nasty or worse than COVID in some people and and will kill vulnerable people. Yeah, Uh, Flu, of course, um, some years the flu seems to be uh, more pathogenic than others for uh, reasons that are not always completely understood, but the flu is a virus that mutates. It's a virus that, uh, if you're vulnerable, can put you in, in a really bad spot. Mm-hmm. And so uh, as we as we speak, we're doing studies about all these things. We know vaccinations work, and we're trying to get to some of the nuances of the strategy. So once you know that the vaccines work, then the question is, okay, do you have to change the vaccine each year? Or is a basic vaccine important? Should it be every six months? Should it be every year? Should it be every two years? Um, certain vaccines we give less frequently, or some we give more frequently. So, a uh, vaccine against pneumococcal pneumonia is typically given every five years, and that seems to be enough to keep the immune system on guard. Uh, shingles vaccine right. is another example of that. Shingles is um, based on a virus that we get typically as, as children. The chickenpox, right? Yeah. But now and there's a chickenpox vaccine too. Yeah, so exactly. are you, I wonder if we could just stop there real quick with the chickenpox because my kids got the chickenpox vaccine. Mm-hmm. I never had it, mm-hmm. but I don't have a shingles vaccine, but I had chickenpox. Right. So I'm probably more vulnerable to shingles versus right. my children who have had the vaccine right? No, absolutely. as they age. yeah, Right, that, that would be expected. Actually, one of the rationales for giving the chickenpox vaccine rather than getting infected is that the virus can live in a dormant stage in your nerves. So if you've actually been infected, it's placed on your body, whereas your kids who are vaccinated probably won't actually have that in their nerves. So that hopefully that'll prevent them from getting shingles down the road. Right, so your shingles vaccine is that ongoing? This is, this is the learning of clinical trials. Yeah, it's fascinating. This is, this is how we establish the truth. And again, through this process of deductive reasoning, using deterministic statistics and prospective, blinded, and randomized studies, we're able to figure out really what's going on in the world. host, Michelle McCormick, and we want to thank Dr. Michael Corrin for his clinical and research perspective behind the science in this episode of MedEvidence, the truth behind the data.